I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews on Amazon. It's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. As most of you know, each and every edition of Parallax Views is made possible by patreon.com slash parallaxviews supporters. On that page, again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews, you can support me financially and help keep this show going with a monthly donation of $1, $5, $10, $15, or $100 and at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mir Project. That's M-E-E-R, Mir Project. They are doing some very interesting work in regards to global warming and combating the consequences of it. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at the... $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And if you were in one of those tiers and didn't hear your name mentioned, please contact me on Patreon or by email at parallaxviewspod at protonmail.com and I will rectify that immediately. Sometimes I do not get the proper updates from Patreon about my new financial supporters and donors. So anyone that's having that issue, just drop me a line and we will rectify the problem as quickly as possible. I've been here for about a month and a half now and... This is definitely the most difficult situation that I've ever seen. Um, In the time that I've been here, um, children have been shot and killed. Um, On the 30th of January, the Israeli military bulldozed the two largest water wells, um, destroying over over half of Rafa's water supply. Every few days, if not every day, houses are, are demolished here. Um, people are economically devastated because of the closure of the borders into Egypt and the extreme control of the Gazan economy by Israel. Um, I saw it. I came to um, 
to look at the aftermath of a place where 25 greenhouses had been demolished on the other side of Rafa, um, destroying the livelihoods of about 300 people. Uh, and that had taken place while they rounded up about 150 men, uh, held them under a sniper tower, and, and shot around them to contain the men, the farmers in the area. Um, so I feel like what I'm witnessing here is a very systematic um, destruction of people's ability to survive. Um, and that is incredibly horrifying. What you just heard was an excerpt from an interview with Rachel Corey, a peace activist who traveled to Gaza in 2003. Shortly after this interview, she was crushed to death by an Israeli Defense Forces armored bulldozer while trying to protect the home of a Palestinian family. Rachel was killed on March 16th, 2003. Today, April 10th, 2022, would have been her 43rd birthday. On this edition of the program, we remember Rachel Corey with the help of her parents, Cindy and Craig Corey. I want to get right to the conversation with them, but first, a short speech that Rachel gave in fifth grade about the issue of world hunger and the suffering of the third world. I'm here for other children. I'm here because I care. I'm here because children everywhere are suffering and because 40,000 people die each day from hunger. I'm here because those people are mostly children. We have got to understand that the poor are all around us and we're ignoring them. We have got to understand that these deaths are preventable. We have got to understand that people in third world countries think and care and smile and cry just like us. We have got to understand that they are us. We are them. My dream is to stop hunger by the year 2000. My dream is to give the poor a chance. My dream is to save the 40,000 people who die each day. My dream can and will come true if we all look into the future and see the light that shines there. Welcome to Parallax News. Two guests I've wanted to have on the show for a long time now. I've been doing this show uh, for three years and I've always wanted to speak with them. Uh, Cindy and Craig Corey of the Rachel Corey Foundation for Peace and Justice, the parents of the late activist uh, Rachel Corey, who uh, inspired me a great deal when I was in college and I, I had a chance to read her uh, journals in uh, the book, Let Me Stand Alone, I believe, is, is the book of her uh, journals. Uh, how are you both doing today? We're doing great. Uh, We're good. Yeah, I'm hoping that uh, we have a little wind here, so I'm hoping this holds up okay, <laughs> that we don't lose electricity and connection. <laughs> we're in Olympia, Washington, and we're doing fine. So for my listeners, uh, where I want to begin, and I, I want to spend a lot of the time talking about who Rachel was, but let's talk about 
uh, how Rachel's name became uh, well known in the news. Um, what happens on uh, March 16th, uh, 2003? And then I, I, I want to work backwards from there and get into uh, the personality and the activism of your daughter. On March 16th, 2003, uh, Craig and I were in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we were living at the time. And uh, about noon, um, a call came to us from my son-in-law, actually, who was here in Olympia. And he asked to speak to Craig. Craig was off doing our laundry. And he, I, I answered the phone. Uh, Kelly asked to speak to Craig and I could tell right away from the tone in his voice that something was wrong. And um, then I, I asked why, and he said they've, they'd had very sad news. And I could hear my daughter, Sarah, crying in the background and she came to the phone. And uh, they had received, while they were sitting down to have their coffee, a message, uh, uh, a phone message went into the phone message machine at the time and a neighbor friend said she was so sorry to hear about the tragedy uh, in the news. And they thought for a minute, what could that be? And then they realized if it was in the news, it probably needed to be Rachel, who at the time was in Gaza and uh, had been there for seven weeks. And Kelly, my son-in-law, went and turned on the TV and scrolling across the bottom of the screen, read um, Olympia, Washington, uh, woman killed in the Gaza Strip. And while they were on the phone with me, he went back to the TV. And at that moment, scrolling across the screen was the message that Rachel Corey, Olympia, Washington, killed in the Gaza Strip. Rachel that day, uh, she, she had been there for seven weeks with a movement, the International Solidarity Movement that had been uh, co-formed by uh, Israeli and Palestinian activists uh, to bring internationals to the region as observers and witnesses of what was happening. And she had very specifically chosen to go to Gaza because she'd learned before that that's where the need was greatest. And she had been living with families, uh, working with other international activists there. On that day at about noon, she and several other of the internationals were called uh, to a site in the High Salam area where there were two Caterpillar D9R bulldozers uh, operating in the area, pushing up against structures. And there had been already developing massive home demolitions happening along the, what's called the Philadelphia Corridor, which was a narrow strip of land that Israel under treaty arrangements had um, control over, but they were um, regularly uh, taking down row after row of Palestinian homes at the time. And uh, so Rachel and her um, colleagues, there were, there were seven other internationals there that day from the UK, from the US. And uh, they uh, made themselves, they were very visible. Uh, they were 
trying to stand between the bulldozers that were moving towards structures and towards Palestinian homes and uh, to prevent the bulldozers from uh, harming those structures or harming people inside those structures. And so uh, at about, they thought they had been successful. And at about uh, 5 p.m. or sometime right before that, the two bulldozers and the APC vehicle that was with them um, went out back to the border area with Egypt. And uh, uh, they, the, the activists thought that they'd been successful. That's the message that they had they sent to their uh, communications person. And then um, one of the bulldozers made a run forward again towards a home where Rachel had stayed. She knew that family members were behind the wall, the garden wall, watching what was going on. There was a crack in the garden wall that later the family showed us where they had watched what was happening. And the bulldozer came toward the home and uh, Rachel did what activists had done earlier that day, took a, uh, knelt and then, uh, took a stand to show that she wasn't going to move. And the bulldozer kept coming. And uh, as it did, uh, it, it, it didn't stop. And she, according to testimony of the um, other activists who were there, um, she climbed the mound of earth that was forming as the bulldozer went forward that she was clearly visible. She was in an orange vest. Um, these uh, Israeli soldiers had seen these activists throughout the day from noon on. And, uh, but this time the bulldozer didn't stop. It continued um, over Rachel. Um, one of the activists testified that he saw a, a kind of frantic look on her face at a moment. And he was rushing toward the bulldozer at the time, yelling for them to stop, but it continued over her. And then it backed over her once again. And um, at that point, her, her friends raced to her. She said, I think my back is broken. And those were her final words. So uh, that's a long introduction to your question, but that's what happened on March 16th, 2003. And uh, I, 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 I wanted to say too, I, I'm, I'm sorry I had to ask uh, the question straight out of the shoot. I, I don't, I'm not trying to make you relive all of that, but I, I, just for my listeners that are younger that may be you know, just learning about this story. Sure. Well, um, you know, Craig and I have told the story in different ways now for almost 20 years. Uh, so, um, it's it's something that uh, I, th I think it's important for people to understand what happened and to know, uh, to, to learn more about what happens there to so many Palestinians. So yeah, thank you for giving us the opportunity actually. So the next thing I wanted to talk about and, and maybe both of you could comment on this, you know, when I told my parents about some of the things that uh, go on in Gaza, or or even when I told them about uh, Rachel Corey's story, you know, I, I think they were confused. They were saying to me, "What do you mean they're they're bulldozing 
homes, they're bulldozing settlements. And I, I think a lot of uh, parents who have uh, children that become interested in uh, this topic and the solidarity movement uh, initially don't know what's happening in places like Rafa, where Rachel was. Uh, how did Rachel become aware of these topics and how did she make you aware of them? Uh, how did she sort of explain it to you? Uh, Rachel was uh, 23 when she went there. So she's 22, uh, trying to talk to us about it. So I think like most college students, um, she kind of introduced us gently. So I'm thinking about going to Palestine, maybe Cindy actually, uh, you know, I tried to convince her that it'd be a good idea to maybe volunteer in a soup kitchen in Seattle or something like that. Cindy thought, well, maybe she could go to India and we have uh, family connections in India through marriage. And so somebody could kind of watch her. We weren't living in Olympia, Washington, where Rachel was going to the Evergreen State College. So uh, we didn't realize how much preparation she'd done over exactly this situation. So the International Solidarity Movement actually was formed because uh, people wanted to have the UN uh, form some uh, observers in the area. And the UN refused to do that because basically U.S. Uh, opposed it. So uh, some people that are now friends of ours uh, decided, well, it doesn't have to be the UN, it could just be individuals from around the world. And so the International Solidarity Movement was formed and in 2002, so uh, the summer before Rachel came, they, they had uh, really a gathering in uh, both the West Bank and in Gaza that a number of people went to, including friends of Rachel's from the Evergreen State College. And one of those friends came back and said Rachel needed to go. And she wrote about this, uh, that she'd gotten a letter and uh, she needed to go to Gaza, in particular Rafa, because that was where the need was, was greatest. So uh, she prepared to do that. She was taking Arabic. And actually, of the people around her, she was consulting with professors, one of whom was an Israeli, Jewish Israeli citizen who uh, was against Israel's policies in the, well, like many Israeli uh, people, as well as Jews all over the world, against the occupation. And uh, actually, the person that advised her not to go of the professors was a Palestinian from Nazareth that was teaching her Arabic. And, and he told us later, he said she'd had two uh, quarters of Arabic. If she'd had the third, she would have been fluent before she got there. And he thought that would be an advantage. And I think he was frightened for her. Of course, we were talking to him in hindsight. So she got interested in that way through college. And then, as you say, uh, parents generally don't know this. Most people, we're talking 2003, I think it's been more in the news maybe since. But uh, we were like most Americans. I, I can remember, you know, I'm 75 years old. I can remember back in the 50s. Well, I was supposed to take a nickel to school every Wednesday and put it in a little slot and some sort of cardboard thing. And that was going to buy us a war bond. You know, I could do that. And then when I turned 25 or I don't know, 50 or something like that, all those nickels were going to be worth $25. And my friend next to me, Linda, was setting her nickel into a different thing, which was going to buy a tree, plant a tree 
in Israel. And I went home and told my mother, I'd rather plant a tree because just 25 bucks is never, you know, it's just too far in the future. And my mother was trying to explain to me that that really wasn't our cause. You know, and now I know those trees were being planted over Palestinian villages that had been destroyed. But uh, that was kind of Cindy and my understanding of the uh, Israel-Palestinian narrative. It was all from the Israeli side. And uh, you know something's wrong. It's, you know, you hear this, well, it was a land without people uh, for uh, people without a land. And you think, well, no, they weren't going to, you know, Antarctica. <laughs> there were folks there. And uh, it just didn't make sense. But we didn't, we didn't really investigate much further, like I think most Americans, until Rachel went there. Rachel was a writer, like you alluded to. And so we knew that words were sacred to Rachel. Uh, and so as she starts to write home uh, emails to her mother, that ed educated our entire family. And um, as a veteran, unwilling veteran from Vietnam, I realized immediately as I started reading what she was saying about the IDF that 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 military is out of control there. And, and was there anything so, in particular that she wrote that stood out to you or? Well, a lot of it. So, uh, but in that particular sense, she talked about the bullet holes around the windows and uh, shooting into the homes of civilians. And of course, now we've gone to see that, the home she was protecting the children. And she wrote about it beforehand, but we've been there and seen it for ourselves. The home no longer stands, but... Uh, the the children's bedroom was shot into as uh, APCs or a tank would roll past in the night. They'd shoot into this building. Those buildings are made out of concrete. And so I'm looking at the, the bullet holes. I could see go that they went through the first wall. They went actually through the second wall into the into their uh, living space, I mean, out of the bedrooms and into the living room, but not through the third wall, which went back to the parents' bedroom. So that's like what we would call an M60 or something. It's, it's not, a, you know, a 50 cal machine gun that would go through the whole block. Uh, but the kids had to, to sleep on the floor in the parents' bedroom, as Rachel wrote, in a big puddle of blankets. Can you imagine being a child, a five-year-old child, and that's what, you know, somebody's shooting through your, your home at night. It's, it's mind boggling. Uh, and of course we can't imagine it now because we're seeing it on TV, um, you know, coming out of uh, Europe now, but, uh, but it, it, it happens to children all over the world. And, and uh, Rachel wrote about it, uh, convinced us the other thing I, I remember, so I'm thinking about the, you don't shoot into the homes of children, you know, it, it, that's, you just, you're not supposed to do that. And I thought, Rachel doesn't understand that this is a military out of control. And then I thought, but she's there. And I remember my going into Vietnam, and it only takes a couple of weeks for you to learn from other people that are there what the situation is on the ground. And, uh, it, you know, so uh, the Palestinians are teaching her, the, people, the ISM members that have been there before. And uh, it seemed incredibly dangerous to me, but, uh, but at the end of the day, and of course, Rachel was not asking our permission to go there. She's 23 years old. Um, 
and I didn't think she'd be killed. But you also, you don't ask your child to be less than what they can be. Um, so um, I, you're just scared to death as a parent, but you got to believe in your kid. And this is also, I think we should note, uh, basically right near the start of uh, the Iraq war. Did, did that concern you at all? Because it seemed like we were uh, in very turbulent times. Uh, Rachel had been very active in opposing the Iraq war here in Olympia, Washington. Um, after 9-11, there were um, new peace groups actually that um, evolved here in our community. So the Olympia Movement for Justice and Peace um, uh, Olympians for Peace in the Middle East. She connected with those groups and with the Fellowship of Reconciliation that had been here um, ongoing for years. And, uh, and she really uh, went you know, on an exploration with a lot of other community people trying to understand why did 9-11 happen? And one of the things that was sometimes mentioned was the Israeli-Palestinian uh, situation. And so she she really uh, wanted to learn, wanted to know more about that. But she was very active uh, opposing the war in Iraq as well, leading protests here. Um, one, one of the people who would help to organize those. Uh, so uh, yes, and the, the Iraq war uh, actually um, started just um, hours, days after Rachel was killed. And Craig and I happened to be on, we were living on the East Coast at the time. Our son was in Washington, DC. The night that she, of the day she was killed, we flew to DC and um, we, were, we were there as all of that was developing. Um, and uh, actually, uh, ended up because of the involvement of our congressman or Rachel's congressman at the time, Brian Baird, uh, doing a press conference um, on, I believe it was the Wednesday after Rachel was killed at the Cannon office building. And uh, th there was a lot of interest in Rachel's story, but very quickly that moved out of the mainstream media because of the Iraq war. Um, you, Rachel was involved in protests uh, against the Iraq war in Gaza as well uh, with children and you know that were opposing that war and she did a lot of work with children and families and that kind of thing so yeah it, it was a factor and yes I wrote to her very specifically and said to her um, do you think you could come home now uh, before the war starts because previously uh, in the first Iraq war, uh, um, we heard about Israelis getting gas masks and that kind of thing, but that the Palestinians didn't. Uh, and nobody knew what was gonna happen this time around. So as a parent, yes, I was hoping maybe she would come home early. Uh, I acknowledge that that probably wasn't part of her thinking, but that I, I wish that she thought it would be okay if she did. And, and on the subject of the Iraq war, and I, I'm only mentioning this because I, I feel like we're going to get those people that are going to uh, be the, the attack dogs, so to speak, and say, well, Rachel's uh, protesting 
went pretty far. And th- th- there's people that will bring up this incident involving a flag and they'll say that uh, <laughs> Rachel was, uh, oh, she just hated America. And I wanted you guys to clear that up and, and talk about um, how Rachel uh, felt about her country, because it seems like she didn't hate America so much as she hated America not living up to its ideals and, and the ideals of, of justice and freedom. Oh, you're spot on there. And that's the way to talk about almost all these issues. You need to talk about acts and not people, not labels, maybe not even governments, but but actions, it seems to me. But uh, she, Rachel did, as Cindy said, she did a protest uh, as uh, in the same day that the whole world was protesting against uh, U.S.'s in, impending attack on Iraq. And I think this was since, back in February of, of 2003, probably. That's right. I believe February 15th, I think, was that date. And Cindy and I were out on the street, too. And we come home and we have this uh, voice on our message machine of Rachel saying, um, Mom, there's I, I was in a protest and there's this picture of me out on the Internet and I look like a mad woman. My mouth is so far open. I could you could a small bird could fly into it. And indeed, she was little with little children and they were drawing pictures of the Israeli flag and of the U.S. flags. And then they were burning those uh, those crayon drawings. And uh, Rachel told us that she the kids would pass her a flag the Israeli flag, and she looked at it and she says, I cannot burn anything with the Star of David on it. But she took a pic, one of these crayon drawings of the uh, US flag, and then she wrote on it in pencil on the stripes, the names of corporations that would profit from the invasion into Iraq and the war, like Halliburton, and, you know, we can guess those, those names, but, uh, and then she, she could burn that. And so that pictures of that were picked up on the wires. And as far as I know, before Rachel was killed, the only newspaper in the United States that actually ran that picture was uh, the Charlotte Observer. Cindy and I were living in Charlotte and they had the name wrong. They had her friend Alice as the person there. So, <laughs> so what luck is that? A picture goes out around the world from a kid and the only people that see it and uh, realize that who it is, is her parents. <laughs> no one else would know that that was Rachel. And of course, it became, uh, after she was killed, people like you say, uh, who tried to use that um, as uh, an indictment against her. I will say, we've had a lot of meetings with people in the Justice Department, people in the State Department, other parts of, well, even in the uh, White House, uh, briefly. No one in any of those positions has ever felt like that wasn't uh, Rachel's right. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's no criticism that we've gotten from people like that. And the other kind of telling thing about that, we have uh, an exchange student that was a senior in high school when Rachel was a freshman. And he wrote to us saying he saw this beautiful picture of Rachel out on the Internet. And clearly it's taken a split second later. You know, you want to be friends with the photographer because they can catch you. And, and it is beautiful. You know, she, you can see her reaction to the children around her and it's just um, a different expression caught frozen in time on her face 
with these children. So, uh, yeah, and she was, she did a brief analysis in one of her writings saying they were people really attributing to people in Gaza, but saying the Palestinians were concerned about the war and, and not that the U.S. wouldn't triumph in the war, but, but in the occupation that would surely happen afterwards and what that would mean. It was spot on, you know, long before the U.S. government had it right. Rachel had it right. Um, so, yeah. Well, I would just add, uh, Rachel loved this country and the people in it. And, uh, but, you know, we were a family that talked about issues as the kids were growing up. Um, this, this wasn't one that we, you know, particularly Palestine wasn't one that we particularly focused on, but, um, but she grew up knowing that she could be a critical thinker and look at what what uh, our policies were doing around the world. She also had the experience as a high school student of being selected to go to Sakhalin Island in Russia uh, for six weeks. We had a actual a Russian teacher and five of her students after the fall of the Soviet Union um, had come here. And one of those students stayed with us for three months. Rachel went to Sakhalin Island for six weeks and it it was it was difficult for her certainly coming back returning here but part of it part of the challenge was realizing that all these years she had heard about the Soviet Union you know as our enemy and and of course now we're we're dealing you know with a lot of questions about Russia but what she found, and I think what we're a little smarter about now, is that the people in Russia she loved, they treated her wonderfully. And, and so it changed her outlook about, about the world. And I think it was one of the things that prompted her to make the decision to go to Gaza. It, she wrote about, um, she felt like all of her study was kind of remote, that it was important to be in touch with people that were really on the other side of what our tax dollars were doing. And so I would just say she was questioning and a critical thinker, a very, a very good thinker. Um, I, I'm sorry that she can't speak for herself. We use her writing a lot because as Craig pointed out, she was, um, she was a lot more prescient about what the results of the attack on Iraq would be than any of the rest of us were. <laughs> so I, I want to, before we start closing out, I want to get into um, how Rachel developed her, her sense of uh, just a, a sort of social conscience, uh, because, you know, it, it's, it's one thing for someone like me to try to talk about these issues with an audience. It's another uh, for a young woman to say, you know, I feel so strongly about this that I'm going to go to Rafa, I'm going to go to Gaza, and I'm going to be around these families that are really facing an existential crisis, and I'm going to try to help them. Uh, was Rachel always uh, socially conscious? How did, how did that develop within her? Uh, while you were asking that question, I was thinking, well, some of it is probably arguing with her father. <laughs> father, you know, uh, might have sharpened some of that critical thinking. Um, but yeah, I think uh, we brought up 
both of us brought up our children to think for themselves and uh, we discussed issues. Rachel went to an alternative uh, grade school where they they focused on some of those ideas and I you think mean that, like an alternative school that that also like focuses on things like uh, civics, right? Well, yeah, uh, yes, and it was within the uh, Olympia School District, so it wasn't a private school or anything. But I think part of it, and Cindy actually is far more involved in in creating that school and in when Rachel was there. But a whole lot of it is teaching kids that they're this that they're schooling, they're still a part of their community while they're in school. And the school, the community comes into the school and the children go out into the community and they, they think about issues. They, uh, they took a week and went around uh, the Olympic Peninsula and they stayed in gyms, uh, you know, schools, stayed with Native American tribes and, you know, learned about the uh, ecology and about other uh, events. And like Cindy said, we had exchange students into our home after her siblings went to college when we had room for somebody else in the, in our home. And um, so there was all of that sort of thing uh, going on. But but Rachel also is a, a small child. She was a kid that sat in the corner and listened as the family uh, to the family dynamics. And she would draw when she was little. She would write later. Uh, she processed all this. Her journals, um, you know, which you alluded to the book, which a large part of that comes from her journals. And there's a reason that I would never keep a journal. God forbid that Cindy get a hold of it and publish it, you know. But but you can see her private thoughts, her, her inner discussion with herself. And then What's amazing to me, because most of that's when she's younger, well, she's younger than 23 through all of it, that she's questioning herself. She has, and it's not, it's, it's a questioning that comes from strength. She, she would have her ideas, and then she was bold enough to say, but what if I'm wrong? Or what about this other thing? And look, look at ideas from various standpoints. So, um, so I think these things build uh, piece by piece, you know, you can see a, a pattern if you look back, but not so much as you go forward, like all of our lives. And uh, I don't know, maybe Cindy has more explanation than I do. Well, I, I think community was uh, a huge part of uh, impacting Rachel as well. Uh, certainly her uh, her her school communities, uh, the options program in the Olympia School District, really focused on community being global too, not not only local. There's a big emphasis on the local and what was happening here statewide, but but also thinking beyond that. Uh, and and the Evergreen State College, I think, really fostered all of that kind of thinking too. And then, you know, some of it was just timing. Like you said, the Iraq war happening, 9-11 happening. It just happened to be when she was coming of age. Um, one, one thing that I really try to steer away from is, um, you know, she, she was a unique person. We're all, we're, we're all very unique individuals, uh, but uh, so sometimes uh, I think, I, I think I don't think she had more capacity than a lot of other people do to do the things that she did. And I think it's really important to 
um, particularly for young people that are looking at that story, to know that um, it you know, doesn't mean you have to go to a place like Gaza and stand before bulldozers, you use direct action in that way, but, but really every young person, we have the capacity to make a difference in our world. And uh, I, I really think that's important. Rachel, uh, Rachel would really want us to share that. She, she, in many ways, was just a normal kid. And for a lot of reasons, this is the, the path, this is the direction that her life went. Are there any, just out of curiosity, are there any stories that you remember from when Rachel was was young, where you were you were, uh, you know, sort of taken by her uh, interest in the social and, and community, and maybe even maybe she educated you about things. I I know she cared very much about things like the environment, um, education, and and things of that nature. Uh, do you have any specific stories that that you may recall of? of her being concerned with these issues at a young age? Well, she, um, she definitely was. Uh, she was our third child, for one thing, too. Uh, you know, each, with each child, you get more relaxed, I think. Uh, so she had lots of opportunity um, to try things and to learn from her siblings and that sort of thing. But uh, she, uh, you know, I, many people have seen her as a 10-year-old uh, fifth grader giving a speech on world hunger. And um, it's, it's out there on the, on the web. And, and she um, and her class were studying world hunger. And because we're in the state capital, um, the group, that group of children was able to go down and have a press conference on world hunger at the capital. And it was covered by Seattle media as well as by all of our all of the parents and so forth. But she was one of the kids who was selected to give a, a talk at that press conference. And when you see her give it, I think what's notable is, you know, she had cards in front of her with the with the words on them, but she didn't need those. She clearly had internalized um, what what this meant and she was passionate about it and was encouraged to be later they went that group of children went to seattle they uh went to to one of the black churches in seattle i forget the name of it now but where where also that was a focus um hunger was a focus so there was um a lot of opportunity at a young age for her to to explore issues like that and to have support doing that uh, from people around her. Um, one of the funny stories that Craig tells about is that she uh, wanted, she organized kind of in middle school a protest to um, support teachers who were going on strike, not the teachers at her school, but statewide teachers who were going on strike for better conditions and salary and so forth. And she came home and said she'd sent a notice to the local newspaper. And I wasn't here at the time, but then Craig actually thought maybe he needed to talk to the school principal to let him know that something might happen the next day. And uh, the principal was a friend. And uh, and in fact, when he asked Rachel, Rachel, he was going to be gone too. Craig was going to be gone too. But when he asked Rachel about it, she said, oh, it was just, a, it just didn't work out at all well. And uh, kids were teasing her and that sort of thing. So, uh, 
you know, it wasn't real success, but yeah, she had in her mind um, always uh, possibilities for acting on things that she thought was more important. You know, Cindy mentioned that 10 year old speech and it is on YouTube. We didn't put it there, but somebody did. And that's, there's a couple of lines in it that are touched on to me and they weren't when I, I did not see her do that. Uh, I was at work. Uh, so Cindy was actually there, but, um, but since she was killed, I, I see that film fairly often. And in there she uses the line and I'll say it backwards because it makes more sense out of context, but um, they are us, we are them. They dream our dreams, we dream theirs. And Cindy and I have done a lot of speaking, but that's, if there's one message that from Rachel reached me and which I wish would reach the rest of the world, that's it. That's, it's a 10-year-old, simple, very, I think very profound look at the world. And I think if you look at what she's written or the play that uh, the late Alan Rickman and Catherine Viner my name is Rachel Corey, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's been on every continent in the world, except Antarctica, as far as I know, it wasn't there um, in at least a dozen different languages. But um, that is, it shows, I think, the struggle of a young woman to define her values and then figure out how to live those values. And uh, I think that's the work we all have to do. So I, I just had maybe one or two more questions. I know we're going a little bit over, but uh, I also, I haven't heard this spoken about as much, but one thing when I was reading uh, Let Me Stand Alone in uh, college was uh, that she was interested in poetry and writing poetry. Could you talk about uh, the, the sort of creative side of your daughter? Because, uh, you know, I, that poetry really hit me hard. Uh, and I, was she always sort of uh, drawn to creative pursuits as a way of expressing herself? Yes, <laughs> she was. When Craig said that she was that she sat in the corner and listened to a lot of what was going on here, but she was uh, from a very early age, um, always drawing, creating in different ways, uh, also uh, writing, and uh, and that too from a very young age. Um, I remember at her first elementary school, or uh, second actually, but her, uh, she was maybe first grade or second grade. Uh, the librarian at her school um, was helping to create a school book of all the children's writing. And she came to me with this poem Rachel had written, just like amazed that a, a, a young child would have the thoughts that were expressed in that poetry. Um, but uh, yeah, she was, I, I think the thing for our family um, is that with, with Rachel, each of our children are so different, which is so wonderful. And um, Rachel was the one that you were, you never knew, um, you were sometimes just amazed at the things that she would say or write. Um, they were unusual and interesting and sometimes really challenging. But, um, uh, and, and I always said, even as 
even when she was older, you knew when she came through the door that it'd be an interesting time. It would be a creative time. Um, you'd hear things that maybe you hadn't thought about before. So, um, and yeah, there's poetry in the book, Let Me Stand Alone. She wrote a lot of poetry. Um, I, we're, we're so grateful uh, for the for the writing, for the art. Um, you know, I look at a drawing that she did of me and gave to me as a present. I look at it every morning uh, when I get up, it's sitting there. Um, and uh, we're very, we're very fortunate, very blessed that she was as expressive as she was in those ways because it gives us um, a tangible way to, to hold on to her thought, her thinking, her creativity. I think for me, Rachel was capable of some one-liners and, and part of the discussion about her uh, doesn't really tap on, but I think the play does. Rachel had a great sense of humor, you know? So uh, what you wouldn't think of as a play when you realize how it's gonna end and everything is, is funny. And, um, and, and I'm grateful for that because that humanizes the person. But I was thinking of, um, well, I'll follow on that, that funny thing uh, when Rachel's, I don't know, four years old or something like that. So not yet in uh, public school, uh, Cindy got a call from somebody taking a, a survey and wanted to know as a parent, what sort of values did she think the public schools ought to um, teach? And so the older kids who were in grade school were jumping around, yelling things out at her that would be uh, funny or I, I don't know, uh, but just, you know, maybe the value of making money or something. Anyway, they were just being kind of obnoxious. And Rachel was standing back as I was kind of watching and, and she just kind of quietly whispered to me, manners. And then stay quiet, you know, which is what the kids and their siblings needed. So, uh, so you know, and she didn't repeat it. It was obviously funny to me. We just looked at each other and smiled. And I'm remembering uh, again, it's something I didn't see, but Cindy talked about it. And it's not captured anywhere because it wasn't written as before Rachel could write. But when she was real little, for something. That, I, that even in family lore, we don't know how it came up, what she was thinking of, but she turned to her mother once and, and asked her, is brave part of growing up? You have no idea where that came from or what it alluded to. But uh, yeah, I guess it is. So the, the last two questions I had, I, I guess we have to talk about what, what happens after um, Rachel's uh, passing, and that's, you know, it, it's a, it's very sad to me that, you know, I don't think uh, justice was served in this case. Um, I, I think the Israeli investi army investigation uh, saying it was an accident. I, I'm not, um, I'm not convinced of that. But it sounds like uh, you actually had a huge outpouring of support. Uh, for Rachel after all this happened. I mean, I, I recently had a chance to speak to Huweda Araf, um, who helped found the, the International Solidarity Movement. And I know you even got support from, um, you know, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, Bet Selim. Uh, could you talk about the, the support uh, that you got after 
uh, all this happened and, and also uh, why people should be questioning uh, the investigation that the Israeli army uh, conducted. I'll just say this and let Cindy talk about it longer, but a couple of facts. Um, the day after Rachel was killed, um, we know from briefings that um, President Bush talked to Prime Minister Ariel Sharon and was promised a thorough, credible, and transparent investigation. And subsequently, we were told by the State Department a couple of years ago by uh, then Colin Powell's chief of staff, Larry Wilkerson, that the uh, the go our government did not consider what the Israeli government did as a thorough, credible, and transparent investigation. And subsequently, we've gone back to the government to make sure that that continued to be there. Um, there stand. So the last time we had that reiterated, I believe uh, was maybe 2011, but it was uh, done by then uh, Vice President uh, Biden's national security advisor, uh, Tony Blinken, who said that was still the position of the US government. And I don't think that uh, Secretary Blinken would back away from that now. So. Um, we even had some support from the U.S. government, not the ultimate support uh, that would actually get an investigation, but uh, but at steps of the way, they were helpful to our family. Cindy, you want to talk much more about that? Our um, family was actually privileged in a lot of ways to be in a position where we could uh, devote time uh, to seeking some accountability for what happened to Rachel. And uh, our children were grown. Uh, Craig and I were able to, to return here to Olympia uh, from the East Coast and, and, and that really became our life. And that pursuit, um, you know, in a lot of ways it continues, but um, was really a, a focus for us for uh, over 10 years. Uh, and we had a lot of support. Uh, it started, I, I would say, um, with Congressman Brian Baird, who was um, the congressman for this area of Washington state at the time Rachel was killed. And uh, he introduced a resolution into Congress uh, calling for a US investigation, calling for condolences to our family and for, um, efforts to be taken to make sure nothing like this ever happened again. Um, at the, he didn't say to us at the time, but he thought we'd be lucky to get 30 people to sign that resolution. And this was at a time when um, we, would, uh, we were seeing resolutions in Congress supporting Israel that passed almost unanimously in favor of Israeli policy. Um, but um, this this resolution for our family ended up being co-sponsored co by 77 members of Congress. And our family, um, our family visited every congressional office at the time. I have, I have a lot of siblings, so they helped with that. Um, but not only our family, constituents all over the country um, went to their members of Congress and spoke to them about what had happened to Rachel. 
and asked for U.S. accountability. Uh, the beauty of that was that it also allowed those folks to talk about what was happening in Palestine, what was happening in, in Rafah, in Gaza. Um, you know, Human Rights Watch said from 2000 to 2004, um, 16,000 people lost their homes in Rafah, uh, in that southern part of Gaza. And uh, it, it, people needed to know about it. The, the resolution on behalf of Rachel allowed for people to be able to talk about those things. Um, but our journey seeking justice, as Craig mentioned, went through uh, the State Department, the Department of Justice. Uh, and finally, uh, it, two years after Rachel was killed, we filed um, actually two different, we became involved with two different lawsuits because uh, the position of the U.S. government was that Israel had not been accountable. Uh, in, and there were actually, uh, one thing about investigations, I'll say quickly too, is that there's an initial operational investigation that happens. Uh, the purpose of it is to try to improve their actions or military actions so things don't happen, I guess, is what they were what they say about that. And then there was a military police investigation. I just want to point out that almost no Palestinian death gets a military police investigation. Um, and uh, so so we had those, um, but the US position was that still there were so many discrepancies that it hadn't been thorough, credible, and transparent. And so two years after we we filed these lawsuits, one was that we, we because there had been a military police investigation, we had to do a um, civil lawsuit. So that was not against the specific soldiers involved, but was against the Israeli military and the government of Israel. And um, soon after that, uh, it, Israel, the Knesset passed a law that said you couldn't bring a lawsuit against uh, any anything they, if it was an area of conflict. Um, that was later overturned by their Supreme Court, but it took five more years before we actually got into court in Israel. And we had a lot of help there too, from our, our Palestinian Israeli attorney, from uh, other attorneys and people um, and organizations. Um, organizations like Human Rights Watch, um, Yesh Din in Israel, um, El Haq in Israel. I was going to say, it sounds like you even had, you know, people within the Jewish community and the Israeli community that were supporting your efforts. Absolutely. When, when we actually ended up in court, which took until 2010, March 2010, um, everything in the courtroom was in Hebrew. So the people sitting next to us, helping our family understand what had happened were Israeli Jewish activists who could, and particularly the younger folks, there were some older ones too, but the younger ones were the best translators. They were just- Often, often they were refuseniks uh, or uh, former uh, IDF soldiers because, you know, everybody's conscripted and, uh, yeah, I remember in, in the trial, uh, our attorney would not have been in, he's Palestinian Israeli, he would not have been in the military. And the judge, who of course is, uh, in the summers, he would be in a military judge, although this is in civil court. Anyway, he said he didn't know whether 
our attorney had ever been in the military. So I'm kind of a snide remark. And our attorney said he was proud to say he had never served in the Israeli military. And all of our translators, <laughs> these young men and women, started applauding. You know, I was afraid they'd get thrown out. We wouldn't know what was going on after that because they had served and they were proud that somebody was proud of not serving. Um, so yeah, we had an amazing, amazing amount of of help from that. And I would say about that trial too, that every trial day, there was somebody from the US embassy witnessing that trial. Usually it was the consul general. And uh, so, uh, you know, that the problem with the US government it is it never led to a change in policy. And it seemed to me early on, you talk about you talk about finding justice for Rachel. You know, Rachel is dead. Rachel was dead. You can't get justice for Rachel. Uh, and you can get some sort of accountability, maybe. We weren't able to do that. Uh, you said that Israel said, well, it was an accident. Actually, by the time we took it to the high court, what they said is we didn't have the right to sue because it happened in what they called a military zone and by, they said, international law did not apply and that they had the right to kill anybody in Gaza they wanted to, including an American citizen. And an outrageous thing to come from the high court of any land. Um, and I am in debt to Hussein Abu Hussein, our attorney, that he would follow this for years and bring that sort of statement out from their judicial system. So what Hussein did manage to do is show that Israel's courts are part of the occupation. You know, and when you people use euphemisms around uh, death and Early on, I made a call that I was nervous about to the Council General, the then Council General from the United States to Israel. And I said something about the, inc uh, the incident, it, and he stopped me short. It sounds cruel, but he's absolutely spot on, and he taught me something. He said, you don't say incident. You say killing. That it's all about words here. And he said, it's an incident if Israel military does something. And uh, he said, and it's murder if a Palestinian does something. And he said, so at least you use killing. And our family always asked for an investigation. So we said to ourselves early on, if we want to have other people believe us, we have to, we have to use language that shows that we're open to believing somebody. So we will use killing. That's that is, uh, even though it was objected to in the Israeli court, it seemed to us pretty obvious she was killed. Um, but that's, that, that's part of the language of all of this, I guess I'm going to say. And, and when you talk about justice for Rachel, I guess I believe what you have to then look to is trying to find the, the justice Rachel wanted to find when she went to Gaza. She wanted justice for the Palestinian people. That's the work that we can continue to do. It's a prospective justice where the Palestinian people, their children get to grow up and have a life that we wanted for 
for Rachel and our children. Uh, you know, their houses are, are intact. They get an education. Um, they get to uh, come and go out of Gaza or the West Bank. You know, the freedoms that we take for granted uh, that ought to be open to everyone in the world. The, the very, that leads into the very last thing I wanted to ask you. And this is, I, I hope this isn't, uh, doesn't come off as a strange question, but I, I'll preface it with uh, this. You know, I, I think today uh, we see a lot more people uh, following in your daughter's footsteps, um, especially just the, the cultural moment we're in. So I, I think, Rachel, you've talked about this before, is someone that was very open to interrogating her own uh, privilege. And I think we've seen more and more people within our culture doing that now. I think it's become uh, much more normalized, uh, questioning one's privileges, um, you know, thinking about social justice and things of those nature. Uh, so I guess my last question, uh, a April 10th uh, would have been the 43rd uh, birthday of your daughter. What do you think she would make of the world today and, and right now and the struggles that we all face, whether it's uh, Palestine or, or other issues? Because I think there is a lot of darkness in the world right now and a lot of, uh, you know, fear. Um, but there, there's also been a lot of positive changes, I think, that, that Rachel would have welcomed. So I guess the question is, what do you think Rachel would think of, of the world as it is right now? Maybe Cindy can finish and I'll just start because I caution you. Uh, and sometimes we do this in a talk and I'll ask for a show of hands. How many, how many people, if you really wanted to look into your heart, you'd say, go ask, go ask my parents, you know, we're Rachel's parents. And so we might be the last to know. And I think you sort of summed it up uh, pretty well. Rachel would have continued, I know, to question uh, what we do to work on all the different sort of challenges that come to together uh, that we see, but hopefully um, see a sign of optimism, particularly with young people. But I think uh, Rachel's mother would answer that far better than her father. Well, she spoke about the importance of making commitments to places and that she didn't want to leave Gaza which she had watched a close friend do just days before she was killed. And she, she didn't wanna leave feeling guilt about the place, the fact that she could come and go so easily and nobody there could do that. Uh, so I, I think, you know, she would be, um, she would have been continually committed uh, to the friendship she made there, to, but to the people of Palestine and to her colleagues in, in Israel as well in the, in the peace movement there. Um, she, I'm sure, would be disappointed that here we are 20 years later and, uh, you know, that so many more people have been lost and that the people in Gaza still live under uh, siege and uh, face many of the same issues that they were facing then, and even worse to some extent. I think she would be, um, that she would realize uh, that the discourse has changed in the United States, that more people do 
know about this issue and care about it, um, the policy needs to change much, much, much more. Uh, looking at this particular moment, um, it's hard to look at the situation in Ukraine with some optimism, and I understand why. Um, I understand why Palestinians would feel very frustrated watching, uh, also because of the amount of attention that's gone to Ukraine. I remember my own frustration when I saw for the first pictures of rubble coming out, because Craig and I have walked in that kind of rubble in Gaza. This is. This is a bigger area, so it's on a different scale. But we've we we've seen families who have lived in that kind of rubble, and met with them. So uh, I, I guess I I don't know if she would hope that, as I do, that ultimately whatever happens here, that that some of the emphasis that our own government has put on international law on human rights. Uh, that 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 would really start to extend to other places and all the other people in the world that are deserving of that as well. Um, so I, I'm sure that would be, I think that would be one of her hopes. Um, she'd be really concerned about climate and how she'd be working hard to understand how all of these kinds of issues connect and I think would be delighted about seeing connections made between issues. You know, the solidarity that's so important um, to keep working on. It's really hard to work on it, I think, just because of time and limitations and other limitations, but it's so important. So I, I think that I think that would be important to her. And I, I, I was just gonna say, I, I understand what you're saying. I think some Palestinians have been frustrated with this whole situation in Ukraine, thinking, you know, well, no one is focused on how we've been occupied. But I, I also think, you know, I, I've had the pleasure of, of talking to Palestinians uh, in D.C. at a conference recently, and it, it was pretty unanimous what um, all the Palestinians and Palestinian Americans were saying there, which was, you know, we understand uh, the Ukrainians' plight uh, because we know what occupation is like. And, you know, my hope is that maybe people are going to start looking at these other occupations and want to see a change. We'll leave it at that, but how can my listeners uh, keep up with the work that you're continuing um, in, in, in Rachel's sort of honor with uh, the Rachel Corey Foundation for Peace and Justice? Well, um, we welcome uh, people to make contact with us through the Rachel Corey Foundation and to learn about our current work, our ongoing work at the rachelcoreyfoundation.org website. And uh, there's, there's a lot going on. We work hard to maintain our connections with um, people in Gaza. We have projects in Gaza. We have scholarships um, that we're providing uh, at the Evergreen State College and at Birzeit University. And advocacy is really important for us. It's a time to be talking to our our members of Congress and other public officials about these issues. And we try to support people in doing that as well as do it ourselves. So. It, it sounds like, um, you know, Rachel went on her own journey getting to know these these people and their struggle. And it, it sounds like at this point, she, she sort of took both of you with her. Um, and you've <laughs> now become part of it where you're 
uh, making friends with uh, people in Gaza and, and Palestinians. <laughs> and I, I think that's a beautiful thing. Oh, thank you. It has been a beautiful thing. Yes. For us. Thank you so much, uh, Cindy and Craig Corey, uh, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you it's for a having pleasure. Me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you got something out of my conversation with Cindy and Craig Corey, the parents of the late Rachel Corey. And I hope this was an episode that adequately honors her memory. As always, if you can, please consider supporting Parallax Views with a monthly donation on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One, five, ten, fifteen, or a hundred dollars. Any amount will help. Your donations are what will help to keep this show going. So, if you can, please head over to patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.